It's a little slim. I hope everybody uh, is having a good time for the July 4th weekend. My family and I spent the last couple of days at the lake. That was fun, but uh, we're done with that. I don't know about the fireworks. Anyways, that has nothing to do with anything. Why don't we uh, pray, and then we'll move forward. Father, I thank you so much for this day, so much for your gathering us together as your people so that we would point each other to Jesus Christ, that we would remember the gospel, that we would remember your great love for us, that we would remember whose we are and we would remember who we are and that we would uh, be called to, uh, to, to spread the gospel to each other and to spread it outside the doors of this church, outside of our community, uh, to those who are lost and don't know you. Father, I pray that as we go over this, uh, the scripture over the next few minutes, I pray that you would have said what you once said, that you would have us hear what you would have us hear, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in each one of us, making your great love known to each one of us. I pray that over this time you give us direction, that you give us some practical uh, implications to change our life and our hearts. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the Sermon on the Mount still. We've been here for quite a while. We're going to be here for just a little longer. But before we get into it, um, I just wanted to talk about a tension that I think that we, we can all kind of relate to or, or, or get that's going on. It's easy to look around in our world uh, today and believe that we Christians kind of have it difficult in the way of outreach. I mean, we know we're supposed to be reaching out to people and telling them the gospel and preaching and telling people about God's love, but we kind of have it difficult in that way. In our culture, where everybody around us uh, seems to be finding their identity and their value in what they do, the mentality all around us is that my actions equal my worth. What I do is who I am. And that's at odds with what we preach in the gospel. So it's really, that's even really spread into the church, hasn't it? We have to talk about this all the time because it's spread into the church. But if you just think about it, I mean, do we even have the freedom to talk with one another about our finances or our parenting or our sex lives or our marriages? Are we allowed to talk about those things with each other? Hardly. It's hard. Because what we do says who we are. And you can't touch that. Right? That makes it very difficult. So if we don't approve of or, uh, or maybe if we uh, put a better way, if we don't believe that a person's actions are in line with what God has intended for their own benefit, we can be immediately attacked and labeled as hateful, uh, which is a difficult thing for a Christian who's trying to act out of love. So the tension is, how then can we express the love of God to others? Should we not confront sin? Is that even still loving if we don't confront sin? I believe St. Augustine rightly said that we must endeavor to get our neighbor to love God. But how can we do that if we cannot confront sin, that thing which is keeping a person separated from God? How can we endeavor to love our neighbor and to get our neighbor to love God if we can't talk about sin, if we can't talk about what we do? Well, as always, Jesus is our leader. Right? And this is where we find ourselves in, in Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount. And it's important to recognize that this passage that we're going to go over this, this week is not just isolated in the Scripture, like just hanging there by itself, but it's part of a larger sermon. Like Jesus, we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount for weeks, for months. 
So I don't want us to forget that this is all one sermon, which really says how great Jesus is because it's taking us months to try to just cover one sermon. (laughs) He was incredibly brilliant. But as we strive to properly understand this week's text, we have to remember the whole context of the passage. The Sermon on the Mount is a sermon. It's not just a compilation of a bunch of nice things that Jesus said here and there. Jesus is saying something all at once. What's he saying? We've been talking about it over and over again. Jesus is proclaiming the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into this world. And so far in the sermon, Jesus has told us who, we, who can be in. And who can be in the kingdom of God? Like, who gets in on that? It's got nothing to do with what the world values. It's got nothing to do with how the world values the life of a person. And, how, and it has everything to do with our worth in the eyes of God. As people are made in his image to be his image bearers. He has warned through this sermon of how the world will react to the citizens of the kingdom of God. It'll be directly in opposition of us, and it will persecute us. The world will persecute the citizens of the kingdom of God. Expect nothing less. And then he goes on to explain that our function is to be the salt and the light. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we're called to be the salt and the light. We're supposed to make the whole world salty. We're supposed to spread light, shine light into the darkness. We're supposed to be a city on a hill. We're meant to reach our would-be persecutors. So that's the tension that we just described. We have to go and reach the people who are going to persecute us. He reveals the citizen's relationship to the law. We are meant to be perfect like our Father, And only through right relationship with our Father can we succeed. And he reveals himself, Jesus, to be the way in which the law is fulfilled. And that only by following Jesus are we ushered in the right relationship with the Father. And he has warned us against the often subtle dangers of this world that will cause relational drift between us and our Father God. And here today, in chapter 7, verse 1 through 6, we enter the final section of the sermon. Now, maybe you're like, woo, we finally get out of this. We've been here for months. But this is what we're entering into. We're enter- he's done all these things. He's telling us about the inbreaking kingdom of God. And here in this final section, he seeks to remind us that our identity and that of others stems from our created value as image bearers of God and nowhere else, including our actions. So it's not about what we do. What I do doesn't define me. It's about who I am and whose I am that defines me. And he caps off the the Sermon on the Mount with this chapter that that reminds us of that. It puts an incredible weight on the importance for us to remember where our identity truly lies. So we're going to start by reading Scripture, Matthew 7, 1 through 6. If you don't know where Matthew is in the Bible, it's the first book in the New Testament, so kind of flip about, I don't know, two-thirds of the way through, try to find the break in the pages, it's the first book, and then it's chapter 7, verse 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? 
you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you, will, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This judging part of the sermon, number one, is very difficult to deal with. <laughs> the judging part of the sermon can make us, it makes me, uh, jump quickly to the defensive, Right? quickly trying to define, well, what does Jesus mean by judging? Because obviously i got to judge in some way. I mean, he can't cer- he's certainly not talking about every way that I judge or use discernment or whatever. We, we very quickly get on the defensive and want to define the terms, or at least I do. I jump on the defensive. I mean, we do have to define the terms, but I just think a word of caution is, is needed. At least it is, like I said, for my part. We should be careful to note our desire to have the right to have the right to play the role of judge at all, right? Like immediately if it's like, well, what does he mean by judging, right? Well, we probably should note that our desire there is to retain some sort of right to be able to judge. That might be revealing. It's revealing for me. So it's still important to define the terms, though. Uh, To know what Jesus means, we can simply test it against other scripture, right? I mean, if a passage is troubling, just a a good thing to do is to compare it to other scripture to help define the terms. You don't have to know Greek or Hebrew or know the original language to be able to understand what Jesus is saying or understand what the scripture is saying. Uh, That's helpful. That's a good thing to be able to dig into, and there's lots of resources you can do that. But you can compare it to other scripture, knowing that the scripture won't conflict, won't uh, contradict itself, right? then we can go to other scripture and try to get some context and try to understand what maybe he means. So a quick look at Matthew 18, 15 through 20, which we'll get to, obviously, in, in, the, in the next couple months. And Galatians 6, 1 reveals what he cannot mean when he's speaking of judgment. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then in Galatians 6.1, which is just a few books over, it's one of the little short letters in the New Testament. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. So clearly, there are times to exercise judgment in the way of discernment or being an advisor or confronting others in sin. And Jesus even teaches us that way, but it is a way filled with caution. Get the spiritual among you to do this. Go in a, in a, a particular order. Go with others, Right? You've got to be careful. So when he says not to judge in chapter 7, he can't be talking about using this sort of discernment. If we quickly look at Romans 2.1 to see what he is talking about, he says this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. The language here is actually pretty similar to the language in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Pretty much could just use the same word, hypocrite, when he's making that charge. 
The language here is very similar to Jesus. And, and here we are helped to see that it must be judgment in the form of condemnation that Jesus is addressing here in, uh, in chapter 7 of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. So we could even read the verse, instead of just judge not, that you may not be judged, we could read the verse, condemn not, that you may not be condemned. What does that mean? Well, condemnation reaps condemnation. Dallas Willard uh, writes in The Divine Conspiracy, he writes this, it's rare that anyone who is condemned will respond by changing in the desired way. Most will feel deeply injured, become very angry, and then repay us in kind. Isn't that our experience often? Isn't our condemnation of another often repaid with condemnation back towards us? But beyond that, what if we condemn somebody in secret or behind their back? Do we reap condemnation then? Like what if we're gossiping, right? Do we reap condemnation in that? What if they never find out? I have a good story. It's very revealing about how awful of a person I am, so bear with me. But this is a long time ago, probably about 10 years ago. My wife and I were leading a college and career ministry at another church, and uh, I worked another job, and I had, this, I had this BlackBerry, which is an awful phone, I thought at the time. But anyways, I had this BlackBerry, and uh, anyways, we decided to come downtown and go to the Hispanic Festival at the, the Commons. Right, and we're gonna you go in there, eat Mexican food. I don't know, do the thing. But we were going with this couple, one of which the the guy was a really good friend of mine, and with a girl that he'd been dating, right? And I mean, I liked them both. I did. But what I didn't like is how like lovey-dovey they were. You know, I'd been married for a few years, and I don't like to touch anyways. And their touching made me a little uncomfortable. Like, it's not like it was that big of a deal. They were pretty much holding hands, you know and they were being like a lot of new couples are. But anyways, I'm at my house, and we're getting ready to go meet them at the Hispanic Festival, and uh, I can't even remember where, where I am in the house when this happened. But I'm, I'm just kind of blasting them to Claire. You know, I'm like, man, I don't, I don't wanna even want to go to this. Do I have to get ready? I don't, you know, just being a real pill, really. But I'm like, I, anyways, I don't want to go with them. All they're going to do is like, hold hands, they're so mushy, they really need to get their stuff together. I don't remember all the stuff I said, but it, was, it got pretty mean and pretty messed up and pretty condemning, pretty judgmental. But I was in the privacy of my own home. I had every right to judge them, right? Anyways, I'm walk, I had walked upstairs while I was yelling, yelling over to Claire with all my condemnation. And uh, I get upstairs and I take my Blackberry out of my pocket and I see the girl's name on the phone in like a minute into the conversation. You know what I mean? Like I'd called this girl. I'd pocket dialed her while I was talking about her. And I was just like, oh. And I just, I just hung up. Because <laughs> that was the right way to deal with it, right? No. <laughs> it wasn't long. This is, we still had a home phone. You guys, you know, where you have it like on the wall or somewhere, it's like connected to the wall. Uh, we had one of those and it wasn't like, 30 seconds later, the phone started ringing. And it was, it was this friend of ours, it was this girl, and she was like, I heard everything he said, you know? Do you think I had a price to pay? <laughs> I did, it was very difficult. I, I mean, it was good. We went to the Hispanic festival with them, but it was very difficult for several months. But what if she hadn't heard me? Would I still be judged? Would I still receive condemnation? 
what damage might have been done to me if she hadn't heard. Or Romans 2, 1 through 4, uh, which we just read from a minute ago, it goes on to say this. It says, uh, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance? Won't we be judged by God if nobody else ever knows? Won't there be a price to pay relationally with God if nobody else ever knows what we say or what's in our heart or how we think of others? Won't we have condemned ourselves then by choosing to sit in his seat above him? Won't our hearts be back to the slavery of self-righteousness that he's freed us from? His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, to following him and being kind, not to lord over our, lord our righteousness over everybody else, right? So yes, the Bible does teach, and Jesus here teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, that we should help one another with the speck in our brother's eye. However, it must be done with a great deal of caution. We must check our own heart thoroughly first as we are to ri- at the risk of losing sight of our relationship with our Father. We're at risk of forgetting where our identity lies. And it's not in anything that we've done. It's in everything that he's done. I saw something really good on Twitter this week that's been really helpful for me, and I, and I think it could be a helpful tool uh, for you as well. I hope so. Uh, anyways, it, sa- it just simply said this. It says, encouragement as much as possible. Advice, once in a while. Rebuke, only when absolutely necessary. Condemnation, never. And I would just add to that, compassion, always. So I would say, compassion, always. Encouragement, as much as possible. Advice, once in a while. Rebuke, only when absolutely necessary. Condemnation, never. If we could think through that and, 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 and understand when and understand how to discern through that, it would be very helpful. Jesus has been teaching us through this sermon how to keep our hearts in check, right? And here in verse 1 through 6, he is revealing a very specific place in our heart that will subtly and easily push God off the throne and off the judgment seat so that we can take his place and be in wrong relationship with our Father. So it reminds us to check ourselves thoroughly. How do we do that? Well, several weeks ago, uh, I actually got to speak in, in chapter 5, and we talked about the expectation to be even more righteous than the Pharisees and the scribes, still part of this sermon, still getting us to check our hearts the same way. So I'm going to use the same, the same scripture I used then. It was Luke 6, 43 through 45, and it says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What or who is the treasure 
in your heart that what or who is the treasure in your heart that's about to be revealed in your actions or in your words? It's going to come out. And whatever you do and whatever you say, the treasure in your heart will be revealed. This last section of the Sermon on the Mount, as I mentioned before, is a reminder for us to remember our identity as citizens of the kingdom. So here's a great process that I learned from Jeff Vanderstelt. If you've been in our MC training workshops over the last year or so, he did, I mean, he wasn't here doing it, but we showed videos and he, he talked about this during that. But uh, he's asking these few questions regularly that he, he gave us in all areas of life will help us remember our identity and its implications on our lives. Number one, who are we apart from God? This is going to have the same answer every time, and I think I, I think I added it to his questions, but it's fine. <laughs> who are we apart from God? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6, it says that the wages of sin is death. We're condemned. We're dead. We're dying. Apart from God, we're dead and we're dying. We're condemned. That's who we are, apart from God. The second question, who is God? Let's read in Romans, excuse me, Romans chapter 3. Uh, 23 through 26, which I just started from a second ago. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Who is God? God is righteous. God is just. He's always been right, and he's always been just, and he's always upholding uh, what is right. He was always right in his forbearance, even when he was passing over sins, because he was always just and justifier, and he was all He had already ordained what was going to happen, his plan for salvation, his plan to send his son on our behalf. God is just. God is righteous. Who is God? God is just. God is righteous. And then the next question we have to ask then in light of who God is is what does God do? And we just saw that he justifies the unjust. That's what God does. Romans 8.1, we might all know this or many of us may know this from memory, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the good news that we have to hear first and foremost today. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does God do? The scripture reveals that God is merciful and he gives mercy. I mean, the very fact that Jesus walked the earth and delivered this sermon, leading sinful people to follow him as he made his way to the cross to give his whole life for them, God is merciful. God has given mercy, and he's full of compassion. What are we apart from God? Who is God? What does God do? Who are we in light of what God has done? We're justified through faith in Jesus. That's who we are. We're heirs with Christ and children of God. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. This is our new identity in light of who God is. 
We once were unjust, and now we're just. Justified. Justified. What do we do then? That's the last question. Who are we in light of what God does, and what do we do then? With hearts full of compassion and emptied of condemnation, because there is no, now no condemnation for us after all, right? With hearts full of compassion and emptied of condemnation, we too show mercy toward others. So the Sermon on the Mount reveals what people of the kingdom of God are like, why, and what for. So here we must see that the citizens of the kingdom of God have been given hearts full of compassion and emptied of condemnation. Why? Because that is what makes the salt salty. That's what lights up the darkness. At Redemption Church, we strive to preach the gospel week in and week out. We strive to consistently preach the good news of Jesus Christ and about how that good news calls us into community and sets us on mission together. We always just call it gospel, community, mission. That's our purpose statement. If we're part of the kingdom of God, if this community is part of his family, and if we're meant to be the proclamation of Jesus to our city out there, then to be the salt and the light, if we're supposed to be the salt and the light in that way, then we have to be asking, are we salty? Are we shining the light? For reference, the salt and the light comes from the beginning of this sermon, right? That's what we are called to. So what I mean is by when I say, are we salty, are we shining the light, what I mean is, are we practicing using our God-given hearts full of compassion with each other? Or are we refusing to give up the judgment seat? And are we using our God-given hearts of compassion with others who don't know him? Or are we refusing to give up the judgment seat? Are we people who model the ability to give compassion always, encouragement as much as possible, advice once in a while, rebuke only when necessary, and condemnation never, as we bear with one another towards Christ-likeness? I saw this short social experiment video on Facebook, maybe. I saw it somewhere, uh, maybe a couple weeks ago. And what they did is they took a little girl and they dressed her up real pretty. Maybe you saw it, I don't know. Dressed her up real cute and pretty. And they sent her like in a restaurant or out on the sidewalk like she was lost to see what people would, how people would react to her. You know, and immediately people like, oh no, you're lost little girl. And they're trying to help her and all that. And then they dressed her up like a dirty vagabond or whatever. They put dirt all over her face and gave her rags to wear. And they sent her into the same places. And people actually like shooing her away. Like, get out of here. You know, what are you doing? And it really broke my heart when I watched the video. And I'd like to say that I would react differently and that you would react differently. But I know that my first reaction when I was watching the video was to sit on my seat of self-righteousness and think about what scum those people must be who would cast her away like that, right? I immediately thought, oh, what's wrong with these people? They're disgusting, you know, and I condemned them in my heart. I know that I, when I thought about it, I'm really just like them without Jesus. As a matter of fact, 
if I really am honest, if I really search my heart, I've condemned little children in my world for much less. I probably wouldn't normally use the word condemnation because it sounds pretty strong and terrifying, but I've done it. Little kids for much less. Even the disciples were quick to do that. You know, the apostles, the guys who planted this, the church. Jesus had to command them to let the little children come. I'm really just like the people in that video without Jesus. But Jesus has taught us anything in this passage so far. It should be that we must be a people who are slow to decide who's worthy and who's unworthy of compassion and mercy. We're too quick to like judge by judge a book by its cover, right? So this week has been a little bit difficult to, for me as I prepared because because that's there, you know. I that had to up, had to be brought up in me. I've been praying for God to make me slow to decide who's worthy and to fill my heart with compassion and empty it of condemnation. And although we must be slow to discern how we help others, Jesus does, in this passage, call us to help others. He does tell us to eventually help our brother with the speck in his eye. Now, verse 6 is the last verse in the passage, which means I'm, I'm finally getting close to the end. It's really troubling for me at first glance, and I got some baggage with it. It says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. Did Jesus just do that? <laughs> right? Did Jesus just tell us not to judge and then call people pigs and dogs? Like, where's the compassion? I mean, that's my, at first glance, that, that gives me trouble. Like I said, I have some baggage with this verse because I've also heard it used as a blanket statement for a whole class or a whole race or a, a whole people group. And that doesn't sit right. It doesn't sit right with me that we can just call a whole bunch of people pigs and dogs and say, not going to take our treasure there. Don't got to take the gospel there. What could Jesus really mean? What would he even, why would he even say that? Is this really the place? What is he really instructing us to do? And in the end, I, f I found something written by D. Martin, Lloyd D. Martin Lloyd Jones. I can never say this guy's name. And he says this. He just says, if our Lord had finished his teaching with those first four verses, it would undoubtedly have led to a false position. Men and women would be so careful to avoid the terrible danger of judging in that wrong sense that they would exercise no judgment whatsoever. There would be no such thing as a discipline in the church, and the whole of Christian life would be chaotic. There would be no such thing as exposing heresy and pronouncing judgment with regard to it, because everybody would be too afraid of judging the heretic. They would turn a blind eye to heresy. So without verse 6, we would just turn a blind eye to sin, because we'd be so scared to be able to judge in any way. And we'd turn a blind eye to sin in favor of not casting any judgment whatsoever. And we would fail then in our endeavor to get our neighbor to love God because we wouldn't really be revealing who they are apart from God. We wouldn't be revealing who God is. We wouldn't be revealing what, what he does or what, what, who they are in light of what he does. 
We wouldn't be revealing any of that stuff. So here Jesus is teaching us to use discernment, not condemnation, but discernment as we seek to share the gospel with others. Like I said, the verses rub me wrong. Maybe it has you too, or maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one that's heard that or dealt with it. Uh, but for me, it's because I've heard it, heard it used as a blanket judgment for a whole people group or even groups of people. But listen, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't deal with people in blanket statements. Jesus, his whole example is always person to person. So to be clear, if we don't take the time to consider the person like Jesus before the issue, whatever it may be, then we aren't exercising compassion, we're exercising condemnation in an attempt to raise ourselves above others and avoid their mess. And if we don't consider the person, we will likely be useless in any of our attempts to help, and all we really will achieve is some sort of feeling of self-righteousness that will make ourselves feel good about ourselves and more holy. But when we consider the person, sometimes when we consider the person, it may not turn out the way we want it to. We may find just as Jesus did when he's speaking with Herod, or Paul and Barnabas did with the Jews in Antioch in, in Acts, that we may need to do what Jesus instructs his disciples to do just a few chapters from now in Matthew. We may have to sh- shake the dust off of our feet as we turn to the next person. That's a hard thing too. Like we're supposed to be having compassion. Shouldn't we just keep going, keep going after them? Well, listen to what Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas say in Acts 13.46. It says, And Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. We came to you first. We're here to speak the gospel to you. But since you thrust it aside and there you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. And what's more, is what happens when they turn to the Gentiles. The Gentiles hear about this, and they rejoice, and they praise God, and they glorify God, and a whole lot of people get saved. So some will take compassion, take the compassion you offer and the gospel you bring, and they can turn on you. They may even hate you. They may attack you, but they'll ultimately be condemning themselves. This is hard, but we have to use discernment then. We can't keep casting it in front of them. We have to turn to the next person because not only does it do no good to stay with them for either one of you, but staying may keep us from the person who will experience salvation and glorify God. I I had to teach FPU a couple times recently, right? And we just did this this one about uh, our investments or I don't remember. No, it's buyer beware. You gotta be careful because they're coming after your money. And he talks about how I don't remember if that's even the right one, but he just talks about uh, how one guy was uh, wanting to buy a car, uh, like this real nice Mercedes, and it was like forty grand, and he had saved up for it, and he could do it. But then he went and he test drove it, and he really wanted, you know, he was planning on buying it. But then he like looked at the number, and he was like, oh, forty thousand dollars, and he saw what that investment could do, and he decided not to get the car, and he went and put the money in like a mutual fund right? 
And then the mutual fund grew, and over the next, what, 10, 15 years, it became like $300,000. I might be making up numbers, but that's the idea. And now that I'm saying it, I've completely forgot the term for that, which is cool. But it's just talking about the cost of, not, of spending your money here instead of spending it over here or investing it over here, right? And that's kind of what we're doing now. We have to at some point, like, use some discernment and say, am I going to keep investing over here? Am I going to keep spending and completely deplete everything and never get any return on it? Or at some point, do we have to give them up and turn away because they're judging themselves and go somewhere else and, and invest so that it can flourish, so that the gospel can flourish, and so salvation can come if we... Uh, not only, like I said, not only does it, is, is it no good for us to stay, staying may keep us from the person who will experience salvation. It's important that we remember that we can't change anybody's heart. This is big, right? As we're using this discernment, this is the big piece that we have to have at the heart of it. It's not just you making that judgment. It's important that we remember that we can't change anybody's heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. You're not going to change anybody's life. You're not going to save them. Only the Holy Spirit can lead them to know Jesus Christ. So we have to put our trust in him and not in our effort and our demonstrated compassion to be able to use that kind of discernment to walk away. So how do we deal with the tension that arises as we turn to proclaim the good news to those in sin? First, hear the good news in this. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. If you're here and you've not believed all this Jesus stuff ever, I hope that you can at least that you can hear what we're saying, what I'm saying, what God's saying. I hope that you can hear the gospel and know that through Jesus, there's no condemnation for those who follow him. Nothing you've done can keep you separated from him if you're in him. You're invited to turn from whatever you're following, whatever you may be striving after to measure up, or whatever you're striving after to find your value in, whatever that may be. You're invited to turn from that and follow Jesus and find that you're, that you're worth enough to Jesus that he would go all the way to the cross for you. He died for you. And I would ask you to believe that. to believe that you're loved, that largely. And for those who do know Jesus, I want you to remember the same thing. And remember that heirs, as heirs with Christ, you're not condemned, but free. We're citizens of the kingdom of God, and he's given us hearts full of compassion and emptied of condemnation. In Christ, we can be a people who can show compassion always, encouragement as much as possible, Advice once in a while, rebuke only when necessary, and condemnation never. That's not for us. And as we trust the work and the judgment of our Lord over our own work and our own judgment, we have the freedom to walk away from those who condemn themselves in order to take the good news to the next person. So I challenge you to strive to remember whose you are and what you've been made into. That's the, that might, that's the takeaway. It's probably the takeaway every week. Whose are you? And who does that make you? I'd invite you to spend a little time 
dealing with these, this scripture on your own. There's a whole lot that scripture unpacks here. I put a few discussion questions in the bulletin. Maybe you can use those in your DNA. If you don't have a DNA, if you don't even know what I'm talking about when I say DNA, I'm talking about like getting together with a few guys or a few girls and just ladies and talking about your relationship with Jesus, talking about your struggles, pointing each other to Christ, nurturing one another, and holding one another accountable. DNA, discipleship, nurture, accountability. But use the questions. Maybe use them in your DNA, use them with your MC, use them with your spouse. Use them as a jumping off point. Go do whatever you want. Study the word. That's the main thing. Spend time in prayer letting God deal with your heart. Ask him to help you remember him and give you discernment before you pass judgment of any kind, whether it be face-to-face, giving somebody advice, gossiping, or just deciding to move on. We need him to give us discernment. And then ask for ears to listen with compassion to others. Ask him to make you slow to decide on anything. Give, give you, ask him to give you ears to listen with compassion to others and ask for wisdom. Just really calling you to spend time in the Bible and spend time with Jesus in prayer. Spend time with your father. Getting to know him and being healed. He's faithful. He'll bring you into right relationship with himself. Over the next few minutes, we're going to enter into a time of response, and we're just going to do a few things. The band will come up. They'll play some more uh, music and some songs of worship, and that's an opportunity for you to sit and reflect, to pray, to stand and worship God, because there's no, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There'll be people at the back also with lanyards that say that they want to pray with you, go pray with them. It's a time uh, for giving. The table's in the back. This is a place where you can trust God with your resources and trust that he's the one who gave them to to you and you can worship through your stewardship back to him. And it's also a time where we take communion and we do this every week. And in our taking communion, we'll come down each aisle, you know, grab the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice. And as we do that, we're remembering that this this is body that was given for us. And this is his blood that was shed for us. That Jesus loved us that much. That the Father loved us that much. All the way to where he's willing to die for us. And he did. And not only that, but he was buried and he rose again. And he gave us new life. And we are free all condemnation, we're free because Jesus has set us free. We've been brought in as citizens to the kingdom of God, and we are children of God. And as we take, we're remembering that, and we're telling each other to remember that. We're proclaiming that through our actions. We're showing where our treasure is and reminding each other to treasure him. So just as we do that, be remember that. And if you're not a Christian, you can't say that you believe, so don't come say that you believe in taking, but listen to what we're saying. Hear the good news of Jesus. There's no condemnation for you if you're in him. And take him. Believe. Go see one of our people who's praying. We'd love to pray with you. Come catch me. Catch anybody. Love to talk to you about that. And you can take and eat when you are confessing that Jesus is Lord and that he is who he says he is and he's done what he said he would do. And you're reminding each other of that. So we invite you to do that with us. Would you pray with me? Father, 
I thank you for this time together. I thank you for your son, Jesus, who's made a way for us to be free of condemnation, who's made a way for us to be full of compassion towards others. We love you, God. We thank you so much for how you love us. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would move even through the rest of this service and through our week as we contemplate who we are in light of who you are, who we are in light of what you do, and how that sends us out, and what kind of change that invokes in us. Would you guide us in that? Would you cause, uh, as you change us, as you make us people of mercy and compassion, would you allow that to overflow and be a proclamation of the gospel to those who are lost, that they would be found and that they would know you and that they would be set free as well? We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.